0: Western Europe, Chapter Nine, of Memoirs of a Revolutionist, Volume Two by Peter Kropotkin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Iolene. A wild panic seized the court circles at St. Petersburg. Alexander the Third, who, notwithstanding his colossal stature and force, was not a very courageous man, refused to move to the Winter Palace and retired to the palace of his grandfather, Paul I, at Gatchina. I know that old building, planned as a Vauban fortress, surrounded by moats and protected by watch-towers, from the tops of which secret staircases lead to the Emperor's study. I have seen the trap-doors in the study for suddenly throwing an enemy on the sharp rocks and the water underneath, and the secret staircase leading to underground prisons, and to an underground passage which opens on a lake. All the palaces of Paul I had been built on a similar plan. In the meantime, an underground gallery, supplied with automatic electric appliances to protect it from being undermined by the revolutionists, was dug round the Anichkov palace, in which Alexander III resided when he was heir apparent. A secret league for the protection of the Tsar was started. Officers of all grades were induced by triple salaries to join it, and to undertake voluntary spying in all classes of society. Amusing scenes followed, of course. Two officers, without knowing that they both belonged to the League, would entice each other into a disloyal conversation during a railway journey, And then proceed to arrest each other only to discover at the last moment that their pains had been labour lost this league still exists in a more official shape under the name of okhrana protection and from time to time frightens the present tsar with all sorts of concocted dangers in order to maintain its existence a still more secret organization the holy league was formed at the same time under the leadership of the brother of the tsar vladimir for the purpose of opposing the revolutionists in different ways, one of which was to kill those of the refugees who were supposed to have been the leaders of the late conspiracies. I was of this number. The Grand Duke violently reproached the officers of the League for their cowardice, regretting that there were none among them who would undertake to kill such refugees, and an officer, who had been a page de chambre at the time I was in the Corps of Pages, was appointed by the League to carry out this particular work. The fact is that the refugees abroad did not interfere with the work of the Executive Committee at St. Petersburg. To pretend to direct conspiracies from Switzerland, while those who were at St. Petersburg acted under a permanent menace of death, would have been sheer nonsense. And as Stepniak and I wrote several times, None of us would have accepted the dubious task of forming plans of action without being on the spot. But, of course, it suited the plans of the St. Petersburg police to maintain that they were powerless to protect the Tsar, because all plots were devised abroad, and their spies, I know it well, amply supplied them with the desired reports. Skobolev, the hero of the Turkish war, was also asked to join this league, but he blankly refused. It appears from Loris Melikov's posthumous papers, part of which were published by a friend of his at London, that when Alexander III came to the throne and hesitated to convoke the Assembly of Notables, Skobilev even made an offer to Loris Melikov and Count Ignatieff, the lying pasha, as the Constantinople diplomatists used to nickname him, to arrest Alexander III and compel him to sign a constitutional manifesto. Whereupon Ignatieff is said to have denounced the scheme to the Tsar, and thus to have obtained his nomination as prime minister, in which capacity he resorted, with the advice of M. Andrieux, the ex-prefect of police at Paris, to various stratagems in order to paralyze the revolutionists. If the Russian liberals had shown even moderate courage and some power of organized action at that time, a national assembly would have been convoked. From the same posthumous papers of Loris Melikov, it appears that Alexander III was willing for a time to convoke a national assembly. He had made up his mind to do so, and had announced it to his brother. Old Wilhelm I supported him in this intention. It was only when he saw that the liberals undertook nothing, while the Katkov party was busy at work in the opposite direction, M. Andrieu advising him to crush the Nihilists and indicating how it ought to be done. The ex-prefect's letter to this effect was published in the said papers, that Alexander III finally resolved on declaring that he would continue to be an absolute ruler of the Empire. A few months after the death of Alexander II, I was expelled from Switzerland by order of the Federal Council. I did not take umbrage at this assailed by the monarchical powers on account of the asylum which switzerland offered to refugees and menaced by the russian official press with a wholesale expulsion of all swiss governesses and ladies maids who are numerous in russia the rulers of switzerland by banishing me gave some sort of satisfaction to the russian police but i very much regret for the sake of switzerland itself that that step was taken It was a sanction given to the theory of conspiracies concocted in switzerland and it was an acknowledgment of weakness of which other powers took advantage at once two years later when jules ferry proposed to italy and germany the partition of switzerland his argument must have been that the swiss government itself had admitted that switzerland was a hotbed of international conspiracies this first concession led to more arrogant demands and has certainly placed Switzerland in a far less independent position than it might otherwise have occupied. The decree of expulsion was delivered to me immediately after I had returned from London, where I was present at an anarchist congress in July 1881. After that congress I had stayed for a few weeks in England, writing the first articles on Russian affairs from our standpoint for the Newcastle Chronicle, The English press, at that time, was an echo of the opinions of Madame Novikov, that is, of Katkov and the Russian State Police, and I was most happy when Mr. Joseph Goen agreed to give me the hospitality of his paper in order to state our point of view. I had just joined my wife in the high mountains where she was staying, near the abode of elisir Reclus, when I was asked to leave Switzerland. We sent the little luggage we had to the next railway station and went on foot to Aigle, enjoying for the last time the sight of the mountains that we loved so much. We crossed the hills by taking shortcuts over them, and laughed when we discovered that the shortcuts led to long windings, and when we reached the bottom of the valley we tramped along the dusty road. The comical incident which always comes in such cases was supplied by an English lady, A richly-dressed dame, reclining by the side of a gentleman in a hired carriage, threw several tracts to the two poorly-dressed tramps as she passed them. I lifted the tracts from the dust. She was evidently one of those ladies who believe themselves to be Christians, and consider it their duty to distribute religious tracts among dissolute foreigners. Thinking we were sure to overtake the lady at the railway station, I wrote on one of the pamphlets the well-known verse relative to the rich and the kingdom of God, and similarly appropriate quotations about the Pharisees being the worst enemies of Christianity. When we came to Aigle, the lady was taking refreshments in her carriage. She evidently preferred to continue the journey in this vehicle along the lovely valley, rather than to be shut up in a stuffy railway train. I returned her the pamphlets with politeness, saying that i had added to them something that she might find useful for her own instruction the lady did not know whether to fly at me or accept the lesson with christian patience her eyes expressed both impulses in rapid succession my wife was about to pass her examination for the degree of bachelor of science at the geneva university and we settled therefore in a tiny town of france thonon situated on the savoy coast of the lake of geneva and stayed there a couple of months as to the death sentence of the holy league a warning reached me from one of the highest quarters of russia even the name of the lady who was sent from st petersburg to geneva to be the head centre of the conspiracy became known to me so i simply communicated the fact to the geneva correspondent of the times asking him to publish the information if anything should happen and i put a note to that effect in "'After that I did not trouble myself more about it. "'My wife did not take it so lightly, "'and the good peasant woman, Madame saint "'who gave us board and lodgings at Thonon, "'and who had learned of the plot in a different way, "'through her sister, who was a nurse in the family of a Russian agent, "'bestowed the most touching care upon me. "'Her cottage was out of town, "'and whenever I went to town at night, "'sometimes to meet my wife at the railway station,' she always found a pretext to have me accompanied by her husband with a lantern. "'Wait only a moment, Monsieur Kropotkin,' she would say. "'My husband is going that way for purchases, and you know he always carries a lantern. "'Or else she would send her brother to follow me at a distance, without my noticing it.'" Western Europe, Chapter 10 In October or November 1881, as soon as my wife had passed her examination, we removed from Thonon to London, where we stayed nearly twelve months. Few years separate us from that time, and yet I can say that the intellectual life of London and of all England was quite different then from what it became a little later. Everyone knows that in the forties England stood almost at the head of the socialist movement in Europe, but during the years of reaction that followed, this great movement which had deeply affected the working classes, and in which all that is now put forward as scientific or anarchist socialism had already been said, came to a standstill. It was forgotten in England as well as on the continent, and what the French writers describe as the third awakening of the proletarians had not yet begun in Britain. The labours of the Agricultural Commission of 1871, the propaganda amongst the agricultural labourers, and the previous efforts of the Christian socialists had certainly done something to prepare the way. But the outburst of socialist feeling in England, which followed the publication of Henry George's Progress and Poverty, had not yet taken place. The year that I then passed in London was a year of real exile. For one who held the advanced socialist opinions, there was no atmosphere to breathe in, There was no sign of that animated socialist movement, which I found so largely developed on my return in 1886. Burns, Champion, Hardy, and the other Labour leaders were not yet heard of, the Fabians did not exist, Morris had not declared himself a socialist, and the trade unions, limited in London to a few privileged trades only, were hostile to Socialism the only active and outspoken representatives of the socialist movement were Mr. and Mrs. Hindman, with a very few workers grouped round them. They had held in the autumn of 1881 a small congress, and we used to say jokingly, but it was very nearly true, that Mrs. Hindman had received all the congress in her house. Moreover, the more or less socialist radical movement which was certainly going on in the minds of men did not assert itself frankly and openly that considerable number of educated men and women who appeared in public life four years later and without committing themselves to socialism took part in various movements connected with the well-being or the education of the masses and who have now created in almost every city of england and scotland a quite new atmosphere of reform and a new society of reformers, had not then made themselves felt. They were there, of course, they thought and spoke, all the elements for a widespread movement were in existence, but finding none of the centres of attraction which the socialist groups subsequently became, they were lost in the crowd. They did not know one another, or remained unconscious of their own selves. Tchaikovsky was then in London, and, as in years past, we began a socialist propaganda amongst the workers. Aided by a few English workers whose acquaintance we had made at the Congress of 1881, or whom the prosecutions against John Most had attracted to the socialists, we went to the radical clubs, speaking about Russian affairs, the movement of our youth toward the people, and socialism in general. We had ridiculously small audiences, seldom consisting of more than a dozen men. Occasionally some grey-bearded chartist would rise from the audience and tell us that all we were saying had been said forty years before, and was greeted then with enthusiasm by crowds of workers, but that now all was dead and there was no hope of reviving it. Mr. Hindman had just published his excellent exposition of Marxist socialism under the title of England for All, "'and I remember one day in the summer of 1882 "'earnestly advising him to start a socialist paper. "'I told him with what small means we began editing Lugovolt "'and predicted a certain success if he would make the attempt. "'But so unpromising was the general outlook "'that even he thought the undertaking would be a certain failure, "'unless he had the means to defray all its expenses. "'Perhaps he was right.' But when, less than three years later, he started justice, it found a hearty support among the workers, and early in 1886 there were three socialist papers, and the Social Democratic Federation was an influential body. In the summer of 1882 I spoke, in broken English, before the Durham miners at their annual gathering. I delivered lectures at Newcastle, Glasgow, and Edinburgh about the Russian movement, and was received with enthusiasm, a crowd of workers giving hearty cheers for the Nihilists after the meeting in the street. But my wife and I felt so lonely at London, and our efforts to awaken a socialist movement in England seemed so hopeless, that in the autumn of 1882 we decided to remove again to France. We were sure that in France I should soon be arrested, but we often said to each other, better a French prison than this grave. Those who are prone to speak of the slowness of evolution ought to study the development of socialism in England. Evolution is slow, but its rate is not uniform. It has its periods of slumber and its periods of sudden progress. End of Western Europe, Chapter 10